Well, we've got a very special treat this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series, Miracles, but we've got a very special guest to do that. Pastor Brett Fuller is the founding pastor of Grace Covenant Church in Chantilly, Virginia. Their church has grown, their church has multiplied, and now it's making a difference across the D.C. area and around the world. Pastor Brett has also previously served as the national director of our North American family of Every Nation Churches and Campus Ministries. So he's done incredible things. He's led a lot of people. But to our local family here in Las Vegas, Pastor Brett has chosen to take a lot of his time and just be a friend to us and to serve us in incredible ways. So the man I'm introducing to us this morning is a bishop, an apostle, a leader of leaders, but he's family. So please join me in welcoming our families of this morning with a standing ovation, Pastor Brett Fuller. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's always great to be with you. Um, I appreciate the worship and song and all the effort it, it takes to make it special. Uh, thank you. Um, I am really full of hope about what this congregation is going to become, primarily because I've been here for the last, I don't know, at least once a year for the last five, and I've seen what it has become. And you're on your way. You're on your way. There is significance around the corner for you. And significance doesn't necessarily mean large, though it can. But Jesus didn't have a lot of large when he left. He had 12, 120, 12 who were the most trustworthy, 120 who were the extended. And that's not real large, considering he was the greatest minister who's ever walked the earth. And yet that 120 was significant. And they made a huge impact such that the ripple effect of their influence is us. They didn't just make an impact in their generation. 2,000 years later, we are still the result of their efforts. And so significance is around the corner for you all. And I want to give you hope in that measure. I appreciate all the effort that your pastors have given and their wives to see this happen. All the servants who make it go, the people who do the, the uh, AV and the sound and children's ministry and youth ministry and greet people at the door. You all are really wonderful servants and thank you for all you do. Uh, I'm going to continue in the series in our Every Nation family. Every Nation is the organization under which this congregation and the one I helped to lead in Washington finds its home. It's a family of churches somewhere between 460 and 500 churches worldwide. I say somewhere between because the last count is usually six months ago and somebody's planted something. And I just don't know where. But we are growing. And we have a common vision to see churches planted, to see campus ministries, university campus ministries established, to see world missions impact the people who are the most impoverished and are on the margins. And to see society begin to do the right thing. Uh, we want to be socially responsible and make sure that we are being relevant to the needs and the problems that are facing our civil society. Around those four things we gather and we do things together. This is what has brought your pastors and me into relationship, why I come this way. Now, I happen to have a sister that lives in LA and so I see her at least four or five times a year for reasons that I don't know, need to go into. But 
Every time I go, I try to stop. Well, not every time. When I can, I try to stop here to say hello. And your pastors are very accommodating and allow me to say something to you that might be helpful. So that's uh, an extended introduction as to why I'm here and what I believe about you. Turn with me over to the book <clears throat> of Matthew. And uh, excuse me, book of John. Book of John, forgive me. Book of John, and we're going to continue our series in miracles. Um, every nation does this every year, whereby we have a moment where we pray and fast, and then we have a series that we preach together. And this year we are talking about miracles. Subtitle, Seeing Generation Next Recover. Seeing Generation Next Recover. John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. John 4, 46 through 54. Speaking of Jesus, it says, um, therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death, 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was going down, verse 51, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Lord, help us as we study. I'm going to do what I can to try to make this miracle uh, applied to something larger than just a man who had a love for his own son and maybe leverage it toward the prophetic and seeing what you might want to see happen in your own sons and daughters' lives. Oh, the second generation is on the heart of God. He's always thinking about next. He's not just the God of Abraham, but he's God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I don't know if I were God, I would have ever had my name associated with Jacob. I might have just stopped with Isaac and said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac. Because <laughs> that dude, that dude was something. I don't know if he ever got fully right. He just got less wrong. But he, you read that without putting on your spiritual Christian glasses, you think you chose this guy? You chose him to be the, 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 the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel? Are you kidding me? But as I read it, it encourages me because I say, I got hope. <laughs> if he can work with him, he can. I'm available. I'm available. My point is this. God is not dissuaded by the second generation's mess ups. Parents are. We're always looking at them thinking, I don't think they're going to make it. Oh, my God in heaven, help, please. I've done all I know how to do. I give them to you now. 
we say all kind of stuff in desperation, not knowing what in the world is going to become of these people who are living in our house. And so I'm going to leverage this moment whereby you may not think that you're second generation son, daughter, or second generation in this church if you're not married or you don't have children, second generation in this church, or the second generation that we see out there. You may not think that they can do what needs to be done in order to continue right, in order to continue best. They might be a little lacking. They might be a little sick. You might think they're at the point of no return. They're not spiritually trying to figure out the right thing to do. They're not uh, re responsive to God. I want to give you hope that this royal official does some things that probably were against his own culture in order to see his son healed. Now, what we see here is that Jesus, it says that Jesus went to Cana of Galilee. This is where he did his first miracle, the miracle of the water to wine. But Jesus' home was Capernaum or Capernaum. He grew up in Nazareth, but his home grew up, young years. But his home was Capernaum. And Capernaum was the place where, that's where most of his ministry occurred in terms of his household and his staff. And these, from this area, this is where he chose most of his, his disciples. Matthew from Capernaum. You had Peter and Andrew. We think they were from there. This was the home base, and we believe mother, his mother Mary lived there, and he lived with her. Jesus actually had a house. I know people think he was homeless. He was not. He was not. If you read the Gospels, you'll say, and when he's in Capernaum, it says, and he was at the house, and he was at the house, and he was at the house. See, it would be really irresponsible for a son who now had responsibility for his mother to let her be homeless. That'd be terrible. Considering the fact that he himself was a carpenter slash architectnon, which in the Greek means builder. So he took after his father, and it's more than just somebody who knew how to put a chair together or make a window for a hole in a, in a house. It meant somebody who could construct things. He could build a house. Why wouldn't he have one for his mama? So he had a home, and this is where most of his ministry occurred up in the area of Galilee, save when he went down to Jerusalem. This man was actually from Capernaum. Well, knew him pretty well, as evidenced by the fact that Jesus actually says, you people, after the man says, please come heal my son, he says, you people simply will not believe unless you see a sign. Wait a minute. How, how did Jesus know that? This man had these issues because they're both now in Cana. So something about the relationship back in Capernaum allowed Jesus to understand, I know you. I know who you are. I get you. And while I was in Capernaum, you didn't really think I was all that I should be. And you were constantly trying to figure out, can you show me something? Because I, I know your mama. And I remember your daddy. I, 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 you're just a kid, yet everybody's proclaiming you to be something other. And I don't know it to be true, so can you show me something that evidences that you are who you say you are, or you are who they say you are, because I just have a hard time believing it. Now, we don't know that these conversations happen, except that Jesus says, you won't believe unless there's a sign. 
But God brings this man, this royal official, and we believe he is probably somebody in Herod's court, meaning that Herod, who was the leader of the Jews, though he was not a Jew himself, had representatives in major towns or areas that could exert his will in those areas. And since it says this was a nobleman or a royal official, depending upon what version you're reading, it doesn't say anything about him being a religious figure. Not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, not a, not a, a, a lawyer, not a scribe, a royal official. He was probably what we would consider the mayor of Capernaum. Someplace on that order, he had governmental responsibility. And the word about Jesus was spreading all the time. And so he was keeping his tabs on this one because he wanted to make sure he could report back to Herod because, remember, Herod was trying to figure out how in the world he could stop all these folks who were talking about him. The last one was John the Baptist, who was Jesus' buddy, cousin. And we know what happens to John the Baptist. Doesn't end well for him. And when John the Baptist dies because Herod thinks him to be a threat, And then Jesus comes up and does the same stuff except more that John does. Herod says, is John the Baptist risen from the dead? What have I done? I can't stop this. They're all against me. And so we believe this guy was keeping tabs on Jesus because John said he's my successor, if you will. Didn't say everything about who Jesus was, but that's the guy you need to follow now. And so Herod needed to make sure that this guy was kept in check. And since he was from Capernaum, that this guy could be probably one of the guys who could report back to Herod. So he knew a little bit about Jesus. He didn't know everything, and he surely didn't believe. But a crisis came to his life whereby his son was now ill. And the doctors couldn't fix it. Let me say that there are things that are wrong with the second generation that you can't fix and nobody can. Now let me say this. There's nothing unusually wrong with the second generation that wasn't wrong with you. We grow up and we grow out of remembrance. We forget what it was like to be 16. And we unrighteously judge them because we don't remember what our brains thought about when our parents were now dealing with us and couldn't deal with us well. We forget. And mercy is not that which, which, with which we lead. We lead with judgment. We lead with fear, insecurity. We don't allow the sense that, you know, God called you from the womb, boy. And this here, this little setback, this thing we're going through, that ain't a big deal. So even though I got to take your phone from you, I love you. We're going to make it. (laughs) You don't have to scream and holler and yell and show how insecure you are about the call of God on your son's life, your daughter's life. You don't have to go off the handle. You don't have to fly out in the atmosphere of anger and insecurity and, 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 and fear. You can just trust. You can trust. This man trusted. Even though he didn't trust right, he trusted something. He said, I can't fix this. I know who can. I know who can. Now, Cana and, and Capernaum, about 20 miles apart. So if you're walking, it's a day's walk, and that's all day. I mean, that's all day, and you are walking pretty brisk. But since this guy was a royal official, he probably had a horse. So it took him probably two, three hours to get there. And considering the fact that his son was dying, he didn't want to waste any time. So he probably got the best steed in all 
of Capernaum. Traveled down to, to Cana and said, um, Jesus, my boy's ill. Can you help? Now, it really probably had to humble him because he wasn't one who had believed in Christ as he should. But now he had a need. You know how you feel when you, when you disrespected somebody and now they've got something you need in your most great hour of need? The last thing you want to do is go to them, isn't it? You're trying to figure out how in the world can I address this another way rather than going to him? I don't even like him. God, I need some money and he's got it. But I just, I just cursed him out last week. Mm. You gotta swallow some humble pie. I don't know any other way for my boy to get help. I'm trusting that your response as a result of this message and many others that have been preached to you can be different than this noble official's response. Oh, not that you don't go to Jesus. Please, please go to Jesus. But do it not on the basis of desperation, but on promise. Promise. I mean, let, let's face it. Most of us treat Jesus like this nobleman. We don't go to church very often. We disrespect his church. We don't love his church. We don't give like we should. We don't do what he says. We don't obey. We don't honor him as we should. Our mouths, nobody could ever tell with the words that come out of our mouths that we're really believers. We don't care for people like he cares for people or else we would minister to them about our relationship with Jesus. Even if we don't have all the chapter and verse, at least we've got a relationship. We want them to escape the judgment that we have, but we don't even talk to them. We hardly do anything that God wants us to do. Yet, when our babies are in trouble, when our lives are in a ditch, we've driven them there. And we need the divine Holy Ghost tow truck to pull us out. When our lives are up in upheaval, who do we call first? And you know what's good about God? He may correct us in the middle of it, but he's always responsive. Because he understands the weakness and the frailty of humanity. He knows how messed up you are. He knows how messed up Brett is. And nothing about my mistakes or my flaws or my character issues makes him retreat. In fact, if anything, it attracts him to me. It makes no, no sense to me. Why he ever wants to spend time with me. Why he thinks I might be a good candidate to work for him. What about my occupational background thinks, you, thinks I, I, I would be that good for you, God? I was the son of a dentist. I was a college kid. I don't have a, a, a seminary degree when I was coming out. I had no seminary degree. You think it's a good idea for me to work for you? And I got, I got right with God in March of 1981. By December of 1981, I was in full-time ministry. And I was looking around trying to think, who thought that was a good idea? I've been born again seven, seven months and three weeks. And I was in ministry. Nine months later, I came to Washington, D.C. to help establish a church I now pastor. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know. In fact, they drafted me. I didn't even volunteer. 
They said, we're establishing a church in Washington, D.C., and we got a ministry we need to start over at Howard University. It's an HBCU, Historically Black College and University. And, and we, need, we need an African-American. Where's, where's that kid from Indiana? Where is he? That's where I was from. Where's that kid from Indiana? It was a meeting like this. And I'm just sitting there listening. And he says, where's that kid from Indiana? I'm thinking, is he talking, he talking about me? And my pastor sitting next to me, he says, stand up. I said, no. I said, he said, come on down front. I, I walked down front. This is how this happened. He says to me, is this the guy for Howard University? Ah, what just happened? Wow, who are you people? That was May of 1981. By August, I was there. Still no seminary degree. 15, 16 months in ministry. And I was starting a ministry at Howard University. God is not dissuaded from our, our imperfections. He's not dissuaded because we don't have enough character or we don't know enough. He's just looking for the available. Jairus... Sorry, not Jairus. By the way, there are five, five miracles in the New Testament regarding children. Jairus' daughter, this man, the nobleman's son, the man who had a son that had what seemed to be epileptic fits that threw him into the fire, the Syrophoenician's daughter, the woman who came to him that was not Jewish, and Jesus still healed her daughter from demonic oppression. And then you've got... Um, the widow at Nain's son in a funeral procession. A funeral. Jesus stops a hearse and all the cars with their lights on and says, opens the back door and says, excuse me, son, get up, please. The boy gets out of the hearse. Joins, he joins him to his mother. And everybody turns their lights off. It's no longer a funeral procession. Five miracles for second generation. And this one here probably reveals more about us and our character or lack thereof than any other. This man comes to him realizing I don't have any other place to go. And I know I haven't been what I need to be. But I'm just hoping. He, he can have mercy on me because I wish I had said different to him. I wish I had done different to him. I wish I had been different to him. And now I've got a need and it sounds so selfish. But I don't know what else to do. He comes and says, please, Jesus, heal my son. Jesus says, you people won't believe unless you see a sign. A correction. And it doesn't, it doesn't say the man repents. It doesn't say he repents. It just says he continues to ask for the same thing. Sometimes God isn't even looking for the perfect response. You remember the guy who was on the side of Jesus at the cross? 
you had two guys. You had Jesus in the middle, two guys, two criminals. Deserved to be there, whatever the Roman law that they broke said. Deserved to be there. Jesus did not deserve to be there. One guy says to Jesus, who doesn't have much concern and, 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 and respect for who he is, says, if you are the Son of God, if you are who all these people say you are, then get down off this cross and take us with you. The guy on the other side says, hey, Brett's paraphrase, shut up. He says, we deserve to be here. He doesn't. Pause. And the guy who said, be quiet to the other guy, said, um, um, listen, when you, Jesus, um, when you come into your kingdom, I'm just saying, um, could, you, could you like, could you remember me? Now, two things are extremely impactful about that statement. One, he knew something about the resurrection that most folks didn't. What do you mean when you come in your kingdom? Everybody who's on a cross is going to a grave. He not only knew something about the resurrection, he knew something about this one's resurrection. When you come into your kingdom, not just when you rise, but when you take the throne, what? Where did, he, where did he get this information? You can tell that the Holy Ghost, somehow or another, even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of his condemnation for his sin, God was revealing stuff to this man. And then he says, can, can, I, can I get some of your juice? You got enough for me? <laughs> I know I'm messed up. I know I've done wrong. I know I deserve these nails, but I'm just like asking. <laughs> now, that wasn't a perfect prayer. It wasn't, Lord, I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin, all of my theft, my criminal activity, and I'm asking that you would now help me to turn away from all of that in the future, though there is no future for me, and I pray that you would... Would, 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 would let your blood cover all of my sin and then accept me as your son into your... There's no perfect prayer in that. No perfect prayer, but Jesus says this. Young man, today, not tomorrow, not in a thousand years, today, you will be with me in paradise. That... That conversation is one of the more significant in all of the New Testament and teaches us something about how God hears hearts, not just words. And if you don't have perfect words, that's okay. But if you've got a heart that is turned toward him, he's listening. You people won't believe unless you, you see signs. Please heal my boy. Please. Not even a, a real conversation. Jesus says, he's better. <laughs> now the amazing thing was this. The royal official interpreted from what Jesus said that somehow or another, he, meaning the dad, had gotten on the right side. He didn't hear Jesus say, 
I'm going to let everything you've ever said about me or what you should have said and did not, I'm going to let all that go. And I'm just going to now go through the process of healing your son. And what's really something is that he doesn't even say, son, be healed. He just wills it to be so. Are you listening? We as parents and we as leaders of whatever the second generation is supposed to be, do not need to come to Jesus hoping somehow that the signs that we are asking for him to fulfill will prove he is who he is. Not in desperation like that. We need to come to him believing that there is a promise that he is supposed to fulfill for the second generation. And that his will will be done. He doesn't even say, boy, be healed. He just says, it's done. You know what's amazing? Is that the, 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 the royal official has no proof. No proof except what Jesus said. No proof, which meant this. Something about him changed because now he believed anything Jesus said. Where, where before he, he believed nothing that Jesus said. Now he's saying, I can go home. Again, a changed heart without the right words. What does it say about the royal official? He started home. He believed, it says, the word that Jesus spoke. And as he was going home, his servants meet him on the way and say, your boy's well. He said, what time? It wasn't like he was even surprised. He was just trying to get confirmation so that he could tell the rest of his family about what he believed. If his son was healed and the time was not very important, he could just go back and say, well, he got better. But the time was important because he wanted everybody else to know exactly when Jesus spoke it so that everybody else who wasn't there in the conversation could understand when and how it happened so his whole household could believe. Are you listening? See, something happened in this royal official's life. And sometimes, and I've had seven of these, seven. Sometimes God allows the second generation to not go right to get you right. I've always believed this. People say, Pastor, how do you raise good kids? I said, Ra raising good kids is, is really... Not, not, not the issue. It's not about growing them up. It's about you growing up. If you grow up as a parent, your kids will be a whole lot better. Sometime around um, when my oldest was 12 and my youngest was a newborn, I realized I was not enough for my kids. Now, no parent is. You got to have Jesus. You are not all that they need. FYI. You, they need much more. And you you, you got to depend on God in areas of your lack. And your areas of lack are deep, wide, and long. Around right about 12, I realized these kids need a better dad. If they had a better dad, they'd be better. It's my fault. And for the next decade, once a week, I've prayed and fasted that I might be better, not them. They will tell you, uh, though probably not volunteer it, that my baby, Grant, who is now 22, got the best version of dad. 
primarily because I fasted longer for him while he was in the house. By the time my oldest was 12, he, he was six years later, he was out of the house. He was going to college and doing. But I had changed so much over the next decade that my baby boy got the best of who I was. Now, it didn't mean that I wasn't trying to be my best for the rest of my kids. I just couldn't be because I knew what I wasn't. And I wasn't demanding my kids be better. I was trying to figure out how I could be better because if I can be better, they can be better. Sometimes your children are the prompt to get the junk out of your life. They are the mirror that helps you understand what you're not. And then what do you do? What do you do? Do you become more frustrated? Do you put the, the hammer down more? Do you become more of a disciplinarian? Or do you allow the grace of God to waft through your life so that your children can be the beneficiaries of your maturity? It is so important that all of us, not just people who have children, but all of us, have this attitude about the second generation, that God cares, number one. Number two, you don't have to be perfect for him to fix them. Number three, he wants you to grow to participate in the process so that you can have a testimony of what it looks like to incorporate intentionally God into your reality of parenting or what it means to be a, a mentor or a discipler. And that the second generation is the hope. I'm going to close with this. I had seven kids. Seven. Um, all of them are fabulous. My oldest is 35. Um, by the grace of God, I've got four in ministry with me. I just handed my congregation over to the second generation. And the lead pastor is one of, is one of my sons. He's 27. He's leading a congregation of about 4,000 on a weekly basis, and Easter at 7,000. And when I chose him or accepted the choice that was him, because other people on my staff came to me and said, he's your successor. At the time they said that, he had just graduated from college and he was 22. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He's my youth minister. He's 22. He and everybody said, he's your successor. I went to the youth ministry and heard him preach. I said, oh, oh, this boy can talk. This boy can talk. I went through a mentoring process with him for four years. Gave him opportunity to lead and gave him opportunity to preach. Two different things that can be combined into one, but he needed both. At the age of 26, I said, listen, you go, take this thing, and I'm going to be in the, the back, back uh, drop. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your backstop. If stuff gets past you at the plate, I'll be able to fix it. That was 2021. 2022, we laid our hands on him at the age of 26 as a, as a lead pastor of the congregation. And the church has only done better. Which all of my peers, my age, they're saying, you should have got out of the way sooner Church has grown in vision, mission, people-wise, money. Everything is up and to the right. My third born is 
the lead chaplain for the Washington Commanders, that team that's never in the playoffs, <clears throat> just hurts me, just hurts me bad, bad, real bad. But I've been doing it for 21 years. He's now the lead chaplain. Doing a fabulous job. And he's our director of all of our university campus ministries in the D.C. area. He's my third born. Tell us, the one who's a pastor is my fifth born. My sixth born is helping in children's ministry. She's over the fifth and sixth graders. And my baby boy, Grant, took over for his brother, Tellus, who's the lead pastor, as the youth pastor. And all he's done is double the youth group in six months. Which makes his brother a little, a little envious. He has to, has to guard his heart. Like, what are you doing that I didn't do? But all, my, all the siblings look at Grant, the baby, he said, he's probably the best of all of us. Now, it's a dream that I'm living, a dream. And as I said before, I wasn't a great dad. I didn't do anything stupid. I didn't abuse my kids ever. They just needed better. But they had a fabulous mom. I mean, she and Eve were sisters. A great homeschool for 23 years. Five grades at a time for about four years. Outstanding Christian. Better lover of God than me. A better woman than I am man. Outstanding. I give all the credit to God and to her for what my children have become. The other three, if you want to know, doing well. They're just not called to be ministers. But I know a little bit, just a little bit, about what it means to walk with little people in your own house or in the house that you build called the church because I didn't just give the church to my fifth born. I've got 15 other pastors and leaders that are under the age of 38 that are leading the congregation. And all of them look to me as dad. They love being in the ministry with me. You know, most of the time when you hand over a church, the lead guy says bye and nobody wants to see him again because everybody's intimidated that everybody will want to listen to him more than they want to listen to the new people. They said, no, don't ever leave. We need you. We love having you around. And the multi-generational thing helps the church know what it's supposed to look like. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Jacob. <laughs> I only mention that to try to fortify everything I've said at this point. And I know a little bit about what it means to cry out to Jesus for the second generation. There were times when my, my kids or the kids that I helped to raise in the church were asleep. And it didn't look like they were going to be revived. And God has done a miracle. A miracle in my world. Not just relationally with my children and bringing them to him, but organizationally in the church. So much so that I believe that it's not particular to my world. That anybody who believes like this man, this royal official, Jesus, will do something for the second generation that has to be stewarded by him. Father, in heaven, I'm asking for your grace that you would allow the miracle working power that you exerted through this moment to be extended not only to relationship between father and son, mother and son, but spiritual sons in the house, spiritual daughters in the house, 
and that everybody here would upgrade their understanding of what it means to grow in their knowledge of how to bring the second generation into their promise. Have your way, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brett. Uh, I want to just do something. Something resonated, uh, as I'm sure it has with you. Um, something in the message that really resonated with me. And, and I just want to pray over that. If you're a parent here, whether your kids are here with you or not, would you stand up? I just want to, as a, as a church, cover you. You know, I feel like sometimes, uh, man, I heard so much of myself in that message, Pastor Brett. Um, you know, sometimes we, you know, Jesus' relationship to the Pharisees, you know, we thought the Pharisees were just so overly overboard on everything, right? Man, you didn't do it right. You didn't do it this way. You didn't put a, you know, you didn't put the, the, enough spices in your tithe. You didn't, all of that, right? And so, and we would look at Jesus and say, man, you know, why wouldn't, why don't they ease up? Don't they see what Jesus is, is, is about? And, you know, sometimes I think we can be, as parents, sometimes pharisaical because we expect our children to be perfect. And one of the things that I got out of this message is that neither one of us have to be the parents or the kids. Because if we had that, we wouldn't need Jesus. And so I just want to pray over us as parents. Uh, just bow our heads. Let's do this real quick. Father, thank you for your grace. Father, thank you uh, that you're in our corner. Lord, I ask you to forgive us as parents for trying to raise our kids absent, trying to raise our kids apart from you. Even if we are outstanding parents, Lord, if you're absent, uh, Lord, it defeats the whole purpose. Our kids will grow up without the right foundation, without a proper understanding of authority. And Lord, we want our kids to have that. And I feel like God is saying for those of you who have older kids and you feel like you might have missed it, and God is saying it's not too late. I believe God is even repairing relationships. And that if you would dare to fire off that text, if you would dare give a phone call, that God would step into your situation and restore those relationships. So, Lord, I pray you do that. Lord, bless our parents. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible uh, the, the next generation, just all that you've put in them, all the promise, Lord, all the things that we fail to see. Lord, I pray you bring out the best in them in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we all stand up now? And I'm going to pray over the next generation. And I know um, most of But let's just raise our hands. Father, I thank you for the next generation of this house speaking both practically and metaphorically whatever Lord for our children our offspring Lord I just pray that you just preserve all of your gifts and your calling that you've birthed them with, that you've created them with. Lord, before they were even formed in the womb, you said, I know what I'm doing with this, with this uh, young man and young woman.
Lord, make them the leaders that you've called them to be. Father, where we worry they can't navigate this world, thank you that, Lord, you have given the ability to do so. And we're going to allow them to do that. Lord, bring them up as leaders. Make them strong. Make them influential. And, Lord, we just as parents just remove all of these expectations. Not the parenting part. We still want to do that. Help us get better. But, Lord, some of these expectations that we've placed on them, Father, we say that we release in such a way that we trust and give them to you, oh God. And now for the next generation of leaders that are coming up out of this house, I believe God is even speaking to some of you right now in this moment. And he's challenging you. You don't know exactly what, but you know that there's supposed to be more. And if you would say, yes, Lord, that's me. Here I am. I think you would be amazed at what he does. So, Father, thank you for that next tier of leadership that comes up from every nation church, Las Vegas, and what you want to do all throughout this city. Father, we believe there are uh, spiritual children all over this valley. You're going to help us to reach and call into the kingdom that you can adopt and call them family. Help us to do that, God. We say yes and amen.